I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity Mates, episode number 30. Thanks for joining us. Uh, as always, I'm joined with my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. Good to be with you again. Yes, likewise. Good week in the AFL. We had the kickoff of the AFL X, which is an international world first. Did you yeah. watch any? Uh, I did. I probably watched too much of it for the quality of footy. Yeah, agreed. I, I reckon it's got potential, but I'm not, I'm not sold on it at this point. No, neither. Bring on the real real stuff, I say. Yeah, it was heartbreaking to see Sydney make another grand final and lose, though, so... Oh, you, you know how that feels, though, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting used to it Nothing now. new. Yeah. Notable that Essendon didn't make the grand final as well, we should say. Interesting. Were they, were they playing yesterday? Well, they played on Friday. Oh, uh, right. Shows I don't actually, don't actually know how they did, but look, look it's probably pretty safe to assume they wouldn't have made the grand final. Hey, 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 come on. We're saving our legs for the real season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we haven't done an interview for 2018 yet, so this episode we're going to be going into our first um, interview with an expert investor or uh, business man or woman, entrepreneur, whoever it is that uh, interests us and we, we think will give you guys some value. Um, so Renna sat down with Susan Oliver, last week and had a great conversation. Uh, so if you want to just give us a rundown on what you spoke about, Ren. Yeah, definitely. So Susan Oliver is a very notable person in uh, the Australian business landscape. Uh, she has sat on a number of company boards uh, in both public companies and private companies, and then also in the not-for-profit sector. Um, and she's worked on both sides of market. So she's worked in companies by sitting on boards and then she also works uh, as an investor. Um, so she, there's a lot. Her resume is extremely long, but I've just pulled out some of the uh, highlights. Uh, she was a board member of Transurban, the Australian infrastructure company, and she oversaw their growth from a pretty small infrastructure player to one of the largest companies in Australia. Um, she f- has founded a company, Scale Venture Capital, which is uh, the... It's a female-only venture capital firm, so they only invest in uh, companies with female founders. Um, and then she also is an advisor for IFM, which is a global investment uh, infrastructure investment company that has over $100 billion in assets under management. So that wow. gives you a bit of an idea. She invests literally from the smallest of startups with scale to the largest of investments in big infrastructure with IFM, um, and she sits on a number of boards as well. So, Did you pitch Equity Mates to her? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for interview number two. <laughs> but yeah, look, she's a uh, very well-respected, very notable person in Australian business, so mm. we thought no, no one better to sit down with and discuss uh, her investing and business career um, and to try and learn some things from her experience. Yeah, nice. Well, we're very lucky to get uh, time with Susan. She's a very, very busy woman, and um, we hope you enjoy this interview. Yeah, now, it was a bit disappointing uh, that you couldn't join us, but you mm. had to pull out at the last minute due to a yes. AFL-related injury, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We, uh, you were the first uh, Equity Mates member to be on an injury report for an interview, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I won't let that happen again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and just one last note before we get into the interview. We've got to apologise for the quality of the sound. We've done our best to clean it up, and it's fine in a lot of places, but uh, there are some places where there's a bit of background noise or it's a little bit muffled. Uh, we're sorry about that, but hopefully the quality of uh, the interview makes up for the quality of the audio. Which I'm sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Alrighty, well, um, I hope you guys enjoy Alec sitting down with uh, Susan Oliver. Perfect. All right. So here at Equity Mates, we're fascinated with how people got started. Now, Susan, your background is particularly fascinating coming from a small town of Barnsdale and being the first woman to complete a Bachelor of Building at Melbourne Uni. So can you tell our listeners what got you first interested in business and investing and how you got started? The building course has got quite a lot of business in it because you're actually being taught at, that's at Melbourne Uni and you actually are being taught in that course um, the business of running um, a building company, a construction company, um, the financing and the management of large capital projects. So while I was um, quite interested in the technical side of the course when I began, I was always interested in the business side and what drove it. Um, the big leap for me, which is probably different from many, is that my parents are both teachers. <clears throat> so there's no background in business in my family or my wider family at all. So the teachers are medical doctors, nurses, that sort of thing, but no, not really business people. So I became very interested in um, finance and um, I, I've always been a bit of a computer buff even back in the um, early 70s and so I wrote a program to um, with a huge stack of punch cards which some of the older people will understand to calculate um, internal rates of return and NPVs for decision making for large capital projects and it was just something that I wanted to know and I was introduced to the financial review when I was at university and I wanted to understand the mysteries that lay within it. So I guess um, the course gave me a lot and um, it opened the door of my curiosity to understand better um, the way financial world operated. From, from those early experiences in business and in investing, what were some of the hardest things you found about getting started and um, what were some of the things you took away from those experiences? Um hardest things. Well, the hardest things um, in my career have probably been to do with the fact that I have such a, a broad range of interests that I've never really specialised. And so many people who are really top investors are probably really good at um, either accounting or really good at some sort of aspect of finance or really good at... Um, contracts or legal and I just uh, have a very general knowledge across a broad span of um, interests. So I like technology, I like engineering, I like infrastructure. Um, I probably get more of a kick off, um, kick from the what I'm investing in rather than the process of investing. And I really like investing in strategic assets. So 
I guess what's been hard has actually been positioning myself to have the opportunity to do all of that because I can't go somewhere and say, I'm a really great financial analyst, I'm not. Or I'm a great accountant, I'm not. So it's really been finding my way with the sort of general knowledge and experience into the places where I want to be. And um, I love the role that I have at IFM. Um, so I count myself as being very lucky to be there. So for all our listeners out there who may not know what you mean when you talk about strategic assets, can you can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, to me, a strategic asset is something where you're investing in it today, but you know that by investing in it today, you can actually build and grow and even change the nature of the asset. So I usually say to people, it's like buying a house. Um, you may repurpose it, you may renovate it, you may end up um, aggregating it with the next door neighbours in order to get a better price or to do a better job in terms of where you live and the amenity that you're looking for. So I like looking at, um, I guess this is really particularly plays into infrastructure and probably into the industry super funds who have got that long-term look at things. I like looking at an asset for the next 30 years or 40 years or so on and thinking about how that needs to change and evolve with changes in society, changes in demand, changes in expectation. So um, Transurban is a perfect example of that because while the very first part of Transurban and the board at the time that I was on the board were a startup company, we had the city link and that was all. And by taking a strategic and very information-based approach to understanding the road network as a whole, Transurban has been able to grow and improve on that road and so the asset they have today is completely different from the asset that they had at when it started in the mid-1990s. So, so that's really interesting and it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about a Transurban or an industry super fund who has uh, capital or a large amount of capital or even Transurban in their early days, they they had a somewhat large amount of capital to deploy. How how does that how does that um, strategic assets philosophy uh, bleed into your personal um, investing choices? Are you looking for companies that are pursuing strategic assets, or are you looking for uh, smaller scale strategic assets that you can uh, purchase uh, on a personal level? Well, any, any investment portfolio has to have a range of investment types, terms, risks, and opportunities. So um, I do have some of my capital invested in infrastructure um, directly um, and through the share market and through an industry super fund. Um, I guess the scale investors perhaps can be talked about here, which is um, a, a women's angel network where, where the angel members invest in women-led startups. And uh, I was one of the founders of that and chair it, and I invest as, a, as an angel. And, of course, we're investing in the opportunity. We're not investing in today. We're investing in the opportunity that that entrepreneur is putting in front of us. So it's very much a strategic investment. High risk, um, obviously, because it's startup, but it's um, it's uh, very much a strategic opportunity. 
Yeah, definitely. So uh, when I was researching uh, for this interview, I, I read an interview you did talking about scale and you mentioned that less than 10% of people seeking venture capital in Australia are women. So what, what do you see as Not the... Right. I have to correct you. Okay. Um, it's less than 10% of people receiving. Oh, receive. oh my, my apologies. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the question then is what, what do you think are the main drivers of such a low, um, such a low rate? And do you, have you seen improvement in your time? Well, scale obviously has contributed. We've invested more than $7 million in um, 12 or 13 startups. So I think we've made a contribution. It's a small sum of money compared with the total um, pool available, but it's a, it's a start. Um, yes, I have seen a change. We started scale in 2013. Um, 10% is probably a very optimistic number. I suspect that it's less than 4%. And I heard a number in the UK early last year in London where they said that 2.5% of the money in that seed capital or early stage capital area is going to women. So I think we've got a big um, gap to make up. But I am seeing more and more of the angel and uh, VCs, venture capital investors, um, backing women. So, and women are participating more. So, yes, there's been a big change since we started in 2013. It's a much more dynamic, confident startup sector in Australia. We're still immature. We're still got a long way to go, and we really do need to see the government participating. In this, I don't mean that the government has to do it all, but alongside of and partnering with the active players, um, such as Scale. Um, we've got a long way to go. We should be thinking about different tax treatments, etc., to encourage people to be investors and uh, supporters. And noting that at Scale, we don't just invest, we also, our, our angels work alongside of the entrepreneurs to help them to succeed. So we've got a, you know, very hands-on, supportive, approach which um which startups need it's a lonely and difficult place yeah definitely so picking up on what you said about uh governments assisting uh a sort of venture capital culture and entrepreneurial culture developing what what do you see around the world uh you know foreign governments doing well in this space and what what do you wish the australian government would uh emulate and bring into the australian market I think it's the tax, the tax, the way that the UK has treated tax, um, for investors in startups to me is really sensible and it's dynamic and it's brought a huge amount of money into the sector. Uh, Australia has been very slow to embrace equity crowdfunding. Um, and that's in the UK, that's brought billions, probably millions at least of pounds into the startup sector. Um, I don't see that governments should invest, but I think they should enable the private sector to see the incentives to invest. And as a, um, a startup, um, investing in my own area is, um, well, there's no tax deductibility for it. You can get an R&D, um, Grant, um, tax break, but you have to, it's actually decreasing year on year. It's getting less and less attractive. Um, 
but I do think through the tax system there's ways of creating incentives rather than disincentives for investing in this this um, category of investment. Yeah, definitely. So I guess uh, going to the other end of the scale, as pun not intended at all, um, but as, <laughs> as well as working um, for scale investors, you're also a member of the investment committee for IFM investors who yep. who are quite a large investor uh, or quite a large um, asset manager with, uh, I think it was $92 billion in assets under management. Passed You've passed a hundred now. Wow. So, so how how do you approach markets and investing with such a large war chest? And does the thought process and um, the the investment identification process change from uh, you know working on sm- in smaller scale um, with with smaller amounts of capital? Obviously, the complexity <laughs> is vastly different. Also, my role is very different. Let's be very clear. I'm not a. I am not part of a, a deal team. I don't go out looking for the deals, putting together the structures of them, negotiating them and and reporting to the own you know, the investors, the owners, which were the industry super fund. My job is um, quite clear. I sit on sit on the investment committee as an independent member. And so I help my colleagues, I and my colleagues together look at the um, uh, the, the objectives of the investment, look at the risks of the investment, um, consider the opportunities of the investment as that's that strategic opportunity. Um, we focus very closely on the ESG, on those sort of environmental and social um, governance issues um, because IFM has a very high um, reputation, very high hurdle to meet in terms of um, that obligation to society now and in the future. And um, we, in the end, um, either agree or disagree to support the investment or we ask further questions and interrogate it to make sure that the analysis is done as completely as it, as it should be. Um, we only look at investments over a certain number, which is over 100 mil, and um, the final decision is always made by the board, so we are just a step in the process. So, yes, I do need to be able to look at those investment um, opportunities, um, but I'm not identifying them, and um, and what we have, which is really fascinating and fabulous, is both ensuring that we do that ESG thing very well, but also many of the investments do have that longer term. And so if you're investing into a foreign country, you need to have a pretty good sense of the stability of the government, um, the demographics, um, the policies and the the laws which govern that land, um, to feel that you are putting the right risk frameworks around that investment. So picking up on what you were talking about uh, with environmental and social responsibility, we, we've definitely seen an increase in shareholder activism of late, um, firstly targeting political donations, and then more recently we've seen a lot uh, targeting modern slavery, um, especially with the big uh, retailers in Australia. Has has that pressure, have you noticed that pressure increase in recent years, especially from uh, the super funds? and do, do you think that it's it's having positive change on the companies that you're investing in? 
Absolutely. And um, whether it's a dynamic change or whether it's been the philosophy, I, I think that IFM has had a very strong philosophy. I think many of the, um, um, the, the trade union um, movement as a whole has probably had a strong social agenda. So I wouldn't say that this has you know, suddenly become popular. Um, it's not a, a, a popular issue. It is a substantial underlying issue that is addressed um, very, very seriously. Uh, also, IFM has some very great innovations around um, positive aspects. Um, the whole solar powering of the um, Darwin Airport is, is an example um, the own ports which have been cleaned up for you know, really looking at how we roll out innovation and technology based innovation across those investments as well um, with an aspiration to actually be at best practice um, with such a big portfolio I think that's really the um, responsible responsibility that we have. Yeah, well, that's really interesting and uh, feel free to not answer this next question if it is... Um if if you can't but what what i'm interested in is when you're valuing uh different opportunity different infrastructure opportunities so for example uh solar power uh, uh sol- solar powering the airport in darwin or something else is there a lower uh, ret- uh return hurdle for investments that have a social good or do you put them all under the same scrutiny and these investments in things like cleaner ports or solar farms do, are they now stacking up uh, just commercially against different uh, other infrastructure projects. Um, I don't think that it's necessary. I don't. We don't go looking for the um, asset that's necessarily the best performing environmentally. We see that managing that asset for ten years, twenty years, thirty years, or forty years, we introduce the operating um, capability and systems that bring it to. Um, best practice as far as we can with ESG. So uh, do we um, compromise on the investment return in order to meet the ESG? Um, I think we would see that the meeting the ESG is part of our operating costs. So it's not part of the capital decision making, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Now, one last question about um, IFM. You mentioned that it has a global outlook uh, when looking for opportunities to invest. So in your research um, and your work at IFM, are there any countries that you've noticed that you think uh, might be flying under the radar and that investors uh, should take a closer look at? I think I think investors and what IFM are doing are two different things altogether. IFM is investing... The super funds um, of you know, collective super funds, if you like, into really big investments, you know, so several billion dollars, um, where they're going to hold and manage and continue to invest in them for, for years to come. Um, I think that mum and dad investors are just faced with much different um, period of time. Um, they're faced with much less opportunity to influence the um, outcome of the investment, unless it's a direct investment like our angel investing, but that's really only available to what we call high net worth individuals under Australian financial law. 
So I don't, I wouldn't try and compare them, Alec. I don't, I think you're not talking about life and life. Um, it's a very different investment strategy for IFM. Um, and they've got a big portfolio, as you said, a hundred bill and, and, um, much of that, you know, of that portfolio is going to require further capex. So it's just a very different game. Um, I wouldn't like to draw any lines of comparison. Fair enough. So, uh, moving on to your um, your board experience, you, you've you've sat on a lot of boards throughout your career, uh, notably uh, Transurban in its early days, and you saw it become the massive company that it is today. For for our listeners who are new to investing, can you explain what function, uh, what yeah, what functions the board play, uh, and does this differ for public and private companies? Well. I'll answer the last bit first because that's perhaps easiest. <laughs> uh, it shouldn't differ too much between public and private um, because you're still working on behalf of shareholders, um, whether they're private or whether they're you know, our, the owners, whether they're private owners or whether they're shareholders. So, um, And uh, that's the role of the board is to represent shareholders in the equation, uh, to represent owners in the equation. And so a board can do quite a lot of things very directly. That is, in the decision-making, you've got a, a group of people that I like to call a decision-making team. So you need a whole different set of skills around the table that <clears throat> together form a good decision-making team. You can't all be goal kickers and, and pull forwards. And so you also need some people on the left wing and some people on the right wing with very different views that can be perhaps troublesome or at least um, prepared to challenge. So it's not just skills, but it's also, uh, I guess, approaches to thinking. So that's what you're ideally forming. And management will have certain delegations of decision-making that they can make, and there's other decisions that get um, taken to the board, that the board has the delegation. So the delegation to the board is usually around strategy, it's around capex, you know, the capital expenditure. It's around the annual, approving the annual budget and uh, ensuring that that budget is work to be achieved. Um, it's ensuring that the strategy is also achieved. It's not just agreeing with the strategy. It's reviewing the risks in the organisation and ensuring that um, the risks are being managed or mitigated or addressed as best they can. Um, so it, it has a a high-level but really important role. And the board also sets the tone of the organisation, the ethics, the honesty, the approach, the ESG agenda. Um, so um, I think that uh, the board has a very important role. And for investors, I look at the board and we'd be looking at the quality of the board and the membership of the board, I guess, Topical, I'd be looking to make sure that there's um, representation of women um, on the board. So you, know, you want quality people, um, good range of skills, and um, and good diversity. Yeah, definitely. Now, touching on um, female representation on boards, because obviously that is a it's a big issue these days. Um, w- would you? support a quota system or some are 
affirm- affirmative action to increase representation uh, in the hopes of getting to equal representation on boards? Um, look, I'm, I'm in the point of time in my life where I'm sort of wondering whether or not I have to just uh, say let's have quotas. Um, sometimes the rock is just too big and chipping away at it is not going to succeed. And would quotas split that rock open and allow common sense to prevail, perhaps? Um, certainly, I'm, I'm also a member of the 30% Club, which is um, a UK group, which we have an Australian affiliation, working to achieve 30% participation of women in the top 200 ASX boards. And in doing that, you realise that you also have to ensure participation of women in executive roles and and um, and so on. So it's actually a, a broad, deep systemic issue that we need to address. Um, I've given uh, 40 years of my life to encouraging women and supporting women and uh, trying to ensure that I had a career as well in a very male-dominated industry. I guess I feel a little bit exhausted that they're still struggling to get 30%. Um, so I guess in my worst days I say, oh, what the hell, let's have quotas. And on my more mild-mannered days I say, oh, well, perhaps we just have a good communications and education strategy and, and you can imagine. So my mild-mannered days are getting fewer in my so out of interest, um, the 30% club is uh, striving for 30% in well, in Australia on the ASX 200. Yeah. Um, do you know what it is at now for the ASX 200? Yeah, about 27. Okay. That's that's better than I thought, but I guess that shows well, how low how my expectations been, are. It's been a lift, but we've got to a higher number and then we've fallen back. So it's just sort of not moving from there. Um, obviously, 50% is where we should be. Um, so, you know, 30% is a mild-mannered <laughs> target that we've set. Yeah, so... <laughs> being stroppy, we would have said 50%, and perhaps that's what we should. So, you know, to be stuck at 27, I think, is a bit disappointing. Yeah, definitely. All the research and evidence says that diverse teams and where there's... You know, but a number of women, not just one, not not just one of them, but several women participating actively, confidently, are better performing teams at executive and at board levels. So it's just so logical, and there is no shortage of talent um, from women. Um, it just makes me cross. Yeah, and we can look to Europe where they have put those quotas in, and they've, you know, they've worked well. Yeah. Yeah. So getting getting back to uh, your uh, your time on boards, um, your most notable board position was your time at Transurban, where you uh, where you saw it grow from uh, a small infrastructure uh, company in Australia to one of Australia's largest. Uh, what what was that journey like to uh, be sitting on a board um, of a company as it grew into one of Australia's largest and uh, maybe if you can, can you shed some insight onto what the board did in shaping the company's journey? First of all, I had a, it was very new 
into a game. So infrastructure was not an investment class that people knew much about. Um, and uh, this PPP, public-private partnership approach, was pretty new. It wasn't brand new, but it was pretty new. Um, so it's a great time to be part of something when it's pretty new and you've got lots of um, uh, opportunities to create something. Um, it was also uh, a new company without the systems and the processes in place. And so there was an opportunity to create those systems and processes and to do something a little bit innovative and I think genuinely well directed around what we then called corporate social responsibility, what we saw as being the agenda that we as an infrastructure company had to pursue. So that was the mid-90s and we had a corporate social responsibility approach and we had management who saw the opportunity for staff to be healthy and um, yeah. so so broad good good philosophies around HR and culture and, and so on. And the money, as you said yourself, to invest in the good structures, the good processes and the quality staff. So we're a startup with everything going for us. Um, because the um, PPP scene, this public-private partnership scene was beginning and starting to roll out and followed the scene as being a means by which um, governments could fund infrastructure that they needed, um, Transurban was also a beautiful place to be participating in that growth in Australia. Um, very early on, uh, we found that it was such a an area of interest that many people were overbidding and so Transurban pulled out of bidding for those new roads, the greenfields as we call them, and uh, adopted a policy of um, saying, well, we'll let a few other people get in early, pay too much and um, wait for them to be sold down, which Transurban has done very well in picking up on brownfields. Um, but it was uh, a company that always had the opportunity to have that growth um, because all of the trends were going with it. Um, the technology, the, uh, um, the transport, the growth of our cities. Um, so it really was about building a successful company, not looking for the market. The market was there. The opportunity was there. Yeah, interesting. So I guess you've known for all your work on, on company boards, both in the uh, the public markets, private uh, private sector and the not-for-profit sector and you've also had experience uh, as an investor in both uh, venture capital and startups and then in more uh, sort of infrastructure-based and uh, markets-based investing. So you have a, a great diversity of views and a breadth of experience. How, how is this... Um, how has this breadth of experience shaped your views of markets and investing? And is there anything you wish people understood better or more people understood? Um, I guess I, I'm struggling a little bit to give you an insightful answer um, because so much of what you do with your own thinking is just innately what you do, or effectively what you do. Um, I think that Confidence is important. Um, also is the other C, which is care. And, um, and the care is around risk and understanding the risks and understanding what my capacity is to take risk. 
And so if I think about my angel investing, that's something that I've said, okay, at this sum of money, I'm not going to invest anymore because as a percentage of my portfolio, I can't have that much more money at risk. So I'm quite sensible about that. And then I look at how I can preserve capital. And so I've got an element of my investment that's capital preserved. And then I look at how I want exposure to Australian equities or overseas equities. I probably haven't done very well with overseas equities. But so it's, it's having, taking the care and the thoughtfulness around what you're investing in and quality of the company and um, but ensuring that you've got the risk categories reasonably firmly in your mind and you don't get carried away in any one of those investment sectors. Yeah, I think I think that's good advice and it's advice that I am definitely learning. You know, when I was starting out, I was very much focused on Australian equities and that, that was all I sort of knew. So I'm definitely learning to branch out and diversify a bit more and uh, and just de-risk uh, myself from the Australian equities market. Yeah, and I, look, you, most people have, and I know probably I shouldn't say most, many people own a home. That is an investment. Um, so that investment in property is part of the portfolio, um, some investment in interest earning, um, bonds is another part of the portfolio, exposure to different classes of equities, whether it's mining, financial, whatever. You know, so, so it's understanding that you want to have a diverse um, portfolio and you don't want to put your, all your eggs in one basket. It's just good risk management in that, in that regard. Yeah, definitely. All right, Susan. So we have reached our final three questions. Now, these are the three questions that we end every interview with. So the first question is, uh, what book or books do you consider must-reads? All right, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to just grab you because I went as the chair of the Wheeler Centre. I was at our Victorian Family's Book Awards last week, and the winner was The Trauma Cleaner by Sarah Krasnathin, um, which I've got to read. Another winner was The Museum of Words by Georgia Blaine. Australia Day by Melanie Ching. And the one that I've started to read, which was not award-winning, but has absolutely captured me, and I'm trying to make sure I get all of the names and authors, is Sophie Laguna, who is the writer, the the author, and it's called The Choke. And at this stage, I'm about a third of the way through, and I'm in its riveting. Perfect. Well, that's four great titles for us to look at and read. Uh, The second question is, what is your go-to source for information? On investing. On investing or just on current events or anything, really? I don't have any single source. Um, I'm actually, I have three newspaper subscriptions, which I try to read reasonably well online, um, including Financial Times, as the overseas and Australian and can you do here. Um, I get feeds from 
brokers and uh, um, yeah, investment advisors. And um, I sit and I Google often to understand specifics around politics and countries and uh, and so on. So I'm I'm sort of a gleaner, an information gleaner. Fair enough. But what I what I'm not hearing there is social media. So no. you you don't get your information no. from Twitter or anything like no. that. No, absolutely not. And then our last question is: uh, What advice, investing or otherwise, would you give your younger self when you were just starting out as an investor? Um, well, if, if I was actually going back to um, 1970s, I'd say buy 100 little terrace houses in Carlton at eight thousand dollars each. Yeah, that would be great advice. <laughs> um, because the very first one that. I bought was 18 and it was up from six or something a year earlier. So, um, uh, so that would, would probably be great advice at the time. Um, but if I was making it contemporary for today, um, I think it's really, I, I think I would, I would advise me to look at, um, global technology stocks. Um, Although whether or not we would have anticipated what's happened with um, Google and others, but that's probably an area of great interest still. Um, I think there's going to be amazing um, pharmaceutical and bio um, uh, science that's going to come along. So you know, probably advice to myself is to keep an eye on those emerging areas because there's some enormous intractable problems in the world and I think that the solutions will come out of the science and technology that people are working on. Perfect. I think that's that's great advice. Um, and that was our final question. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on, Susan. We really appreciate your uh, insight and advice. That's a pleasure, Alex. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.